Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. This week, I'd like to welcome my two guests, Dror Poleg and Anthony Slumbers, who are both co-founders of the Real Innovation Academy. Dror is also the author of Rethinking Real Estate and the founder of Hype Free Crypto. Dror explores the impact of technology on where and how people live, work, and socialize. His insights have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, NBC, the Times of London, and beyond. Dror regularly briefs, advises, and teaches senior executives from multi-billion dollar companies such as UBS, Bank of America, HSBC, Avalon Bay Communities, Heinz, and others. Anthony advises the boards of commercial real estate institutions, developers, and professional services companies on the impact of new technologies on the real estate industry and the opportunities this brings. From how technology is changing the nature of demand to the changes that will bring about in the nature of supply, operations, and business models. Currently, Anthony is highly focused on space as a service and artificial intelligence, the two trends that he believes will have the greatest impact on the market in the next few years. So thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate both of you coming on. Funny enough, I was really nervous this morning. I don't know why I've done so many of these podcasts in the past year. And I was like, Jordan Anthony, you're going to be on. And I'm like, super nervous. <laughs> he's draw. He's very scary. <laughs> All good. All good. It's a sunny day. It's nice. That's good. That's good. Why don't we kick this off by you both uh, introducing yourself? Maybe, Jordan, if you want to go first. Sure. So I'm the author of Rethinking Real Estate, which is a book about the future of real estate, uh, published just before COVID and kind of highlighted a lot of the trends that we saw intensifying or just becoming completely clear over the last couple of years, uh, particularly uh, the office itself becoming an optional thing for a lot of companies, uh, the preference for more and more companies to hire from a global talent pool rather than a specific area or even multiple specific areas. Uh, the growing convergence between housing and hospitality and kind of like people staying for months on Airbnb or people sharing apartments or renting them flexibly as hotels, uh, as well as other interesting changes in the world of retail and, and industrial. Uh, these days, my main focus is teaching online. So I'm teaching a course together with Anthony about the future of real estate, uh, training people from all of the largest companies in the space, basically with all sorts of fame, frameworks, case studies, ways to think about change and to kind of uh, come up with their own ideas and resist barriers within their own organizations to, to change and innovation. And I also teach a course about crypto, which is more reasonable than it sounds. It's called Hyper Crypto and basically trying to introduce crypto people to more reasonable approaches to how to use their knowledge in actual industries and solving real problems and introducing people from other industries to how crypto may be useful to them in some narrow cases. Great. Anthony? My background goes goes back a long way. I was actually working in prop tech probably a decade and a half before the word even existed. I started my first prop tech company in, believe it or not, 1995, and have since then done in and out of five, five different companies, writing software primarily for property managers running large, large office buildings, so things like business management systems, Tenant engagement systems from we were doing years before tenant engagement was a thing, that sort of stuff. So I mainly approach, I've always worked within real estate, but always from the te- technology side. Um, and then over the last few years, I've done a lot more writing, speaking. And then a couple of years ago, started the um, Real Innovation Academy with, with Draw. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, it's actually interesting because that's how, well, actually, I got introduced to Drawer. Uh, when I saw your book, your your book sort of came through my LinkedIn feed and I was like, oh, what's this? And I read it and then we connected on LinkedIn and was fascinated by sort of your approach and your thinking about corporate real estate. And then that's how I learned about 
the Real Innovation Academy, which I think started last year, was about a year ago, right? When you started? Yeah, two years ago already. Oh, going, two going, years, going. wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's, we coincided with COVID, so we started thinking of the idea. We've been mulling it for like a year, even before COVID. But then when COVID started, we're like, okay, this is a great time. Both years, <laughs> we're both suddenly home. <laughs> we have nothing better to do. And also just because everyone is now going to think about those things and going to feel them in their bones and be terrified about what's going to happen to real estate. So for uh, sure. Yeah. The timing, the timing couldn't have been better. So, um, George, thinking about the, your book, um, rethinking real estate, what inspired you to actually write it? So a bit like Anthony, I was, you know, dealing with real estate and kind of with the intersection of real estate and tech for a long time. In my case, more from the real estate side. So being a developer in China of all places and building shopping malls and office buildings and apartments. Uh, but particularly with the shopping malls, technology was always on our mind, you know, because we, we had to like install sensors and to, to, to manage traffic and we had to install much more complex systems that you have in a normal residential or even office building. And we had to think like a consumer brand because we had to both work with other brands that lived in our mall and we had to market the mall itself. So we didn't think only about our tenants, but we thought about our tenants, customers and how our tenants can make themselves more attractive. Uh, so I think in the retail development process to begin with, there's a lot of what the rest of real estate needs to know in the future. So like that kind of consumer thinking, the use of technology more intensively, uh, then involvement in the turnover of your customer on a daily or monthly basis rather than, you know, come see me in 10 years and, and let's renew your lease. Uh, and about seven years ago, I, I let, I tried to escape from the real estate world and funded, founded a startup that builds like a location based social network, like an app that kind of allows you to find friends nearby. Uh, and the only people that were interested in this app were real estate people. So they dragged me back and said, okay, let's use this for a multifamily project or for a co-working space or for a sporting venue or for a multifamily or for our university campus to let people interact with people nearby or kind of engage basically our audience. Uh, and as I started looking at that, I realized that that's not the business that I want to build because I'm not interested in just being like a SaaS provider to real estate people, God forbid. But uh, I mean, there's other people to sell to that are nicer in the world. No, real estate people are so tough and demanding and like, you know, uh, but uh, but I realized that there's a bigger story there about tech and real estate that has really broad implications and affects every aspect of the assets themselves, but also the nature of the assets as financial products, like the, the assumptions about how stable their income is and how thick should the management layer be and all sorts of things. Uh, that I thought institutional investors should know about. And when I looked backwards, I figured, okay, actually, I know a lot about this because I've been dealing with real estate and tech for a long time, even though, like Anthony, I never thought about it in those terms and we never called it prop tech. Uh, and the more I researched, the more I found stuff that I thought people should know. And at some point I said, okay, I have so much information here. I, I just have to write a book about it because it doesn't look like anyone else will. So, yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's a really great story. I, I, as I said, I, I was always fascinated by just the perspectives that you, ha that you bring forward, you know, just reading even some of your blog posts and stuff around real estate. And it's, it's one of those things where it's not necessarily, you know, focused on just the landlord side, that there's also elements from a, from a tenant side. So it's kind of that have seen that nice balance between the two. Cause sometimes you'll see stuff that's really slanted more towards the, landlord versus the tenant and so you're sort of trying to decipher like when you think about prop tech corporate real estate prop tech specifically it's usually very landlord specific it's not so much about the tenant whereas in our world we're very much about the tenant and trying to elevate the tenant and you know their their knowledge and inform, giving them information so that they can make you know appropriate decisions and we're we're seeing is those those two worlds actually coming uh, coming together. Um, that actually leads me to the next question, which is, you know, just thinking about the Real Innovation Academy, which I actually had the um, pleasure and privilege of attending. And so, Anthony, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, you know, uh, what it, what is the Real Innovation Academy and um, what what is its purpose for its existence? Okay. Um, it, it's quite an interesting, interesting background, actually. Draw and I met over over Twitter, the, the best place to meet. Oh, wow. <laughs> the best, the best place to meet smart, smart people that's ever arrived. Um, oh, se se several years, several years ago. And we sort of, we 
come from different directions, but basically end up in the same place. And we were thinking about um, what needs to happen. This is 2019. And we started to think, well, the the fundamental problem is that uh, real estate people don't know anything about tech and tech people don't know anything about real estate. And they don't understand each other's worlds and the incentives and the dynamics and the the forces behind the real estate industry and the forces behind the technology industry, what matters to tech and what matters to to real estate. Um, And that's pretty much what, you know, both Draw and I have been writing and speaking about for for quite quite a long time. So that was the the starting point of it, was was exactly to to do that, to find real, real estate people who wanted to know about tech and tech people who wanted to know about real estate, which actually sort of by default targeted it towards what we like to think the most interesting people in real estate, because the real estate people that are thinking about this and the tech people that are thinking about that are almost by, by default the people who are looking to innovate real estate to somewhere new, but also with a sense of pra- practicality. You know, the, the, to, to be interested in both sides mean, means you understand that, you know, this is a, this is a big beast and big beasts do take, take time. To, to move, but when they do move, you can't stop the buggers. They, you know, they just they just they just keep keep going. Um, so we thought we weren't really sure who who it would attract. Um, we thought to start with, it would attract people that read 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 our stuff. Um, but what's actually tra- transpired is the breadth of um, backgrounds of the people that have done the course is is really really interesting. So we've got, I think we've had people from forty eight countries. Every continent apart from Antarctica, that's the only place we haven't got, got anyone from. So, so we're far. working on it. We're trying to stand um, there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's quite, quite hard to create fires in Antarctica. So, um, <laughs> but we, we, we found that we've had people who are early twenties, just starting in the industry up to main board directors of some of the biggest real estate companies. In the world, but also we've had, we've had brokers, we've had flex operators, we've had designers, we've had all manner of all manner of different different people. And I think what we try and do is give people, as I say, an understanding of the technology that they need to know, the the dynamics of the real estate industry. A lot of problem tech people have, as as you say, selling into the real estate industry. And, you know, they try and sell it, they sell, try and sell it to the wrong person at the wrong, mm-hmm. wrong time, who's got the wrong incentives. I mean, draw, draw stuff on this and the course is, is excellent. I learned, learned a ton, ton out, out of it. But the importance of understanding the, the motivations of your customer become very clear. Um, and then also there's a bit about, um, thinking like a tech person. So un- understanding networks and ecosystems and platforms and, Build, measure, learn, and iteration, and never ever, and things never ever been finished, and understanding the customer and value proposition. So we do quite a lot of a lot of that. So one of the people in our in our first course, from a, a chap from Hong Kong, said, "You know, this is a really weird course. It's like it's like a third real estate, a, a third tech, and a third of baby MBA." And but I think that's good, and it's aimed at it's aimed at people who really are taking a business a business approach to real estate so you have to understand the, these dynamics so yes i mean what we're what we're fundamentally trying to do is create a network of the most interesting people in real estate around the world and hope to catalyze relationships and networks and new ways of thinking new products new services new ways of financing really all, all the interesting stuff to counter the argument about Oh, real estate stayed and love it. And, you know, what are you going to do with it? We take the approach of people spend 90% of their time indoors inside real estate. So whether offices are going up or down or retail's going up and down, it really shouldn't matter to a real estate person because they're still going to be in real estate. So if you understand, <laughs> if you understand what people want, what they need, then build it for them. So it's, it's, it's been, incredibly interesting interesting journey today that's really interesting you said you said a lot of things but the thing that really interests me um is when you think about the how slow real estate has been to adapt change 
What would you say is the reason for that? Like I'm thinking about like flexible work, as I've said for forever. You know, we've been talking about flexible work since I started in corporate real estate, which was over 25 years ago. And I think the biggest aha for me was I went to an IFMA show just shortly after joining Free Logics and talking to, you know, would-be customers who were still talking about the same things that we were talking about 25 years ago. And that was like, what's happening? <laughs> Why are we still talking about the same, the same thing? And it's, it's just baffling to me that, you know, you sort of can see the writing on the wall, obviously understanding that real estate is very iterative because a lot of companies, you know, follow trends. There's a, a number of different forces that are driving whether you use real estate or you don't use real estate, but it's always baffled me in terms of how slow real estate has been to adopt change. They're very entrenched in tradition. So why, what do you think the reason for that is? Ooh, so where do I begin? Um, <laughs> I think one, I mean, which is like the, the overarching kind of umbrella for all of this is, you know, some sort of a monopoly mindset, uh, a mindset of like, you know, we don't have to change. Uh, and also, yes, even if we acknowledge that all sorts of things are happening on the demand side that are changing, this is kind of none of our business. You know, it's our tenants' business. It's our service provider's business. It's the broker's business. But, you know, we just, we're just here to build a building and, Whoever needs to sell it or to make it comfortable for anyone else, let them do that. But that's not of our that's not our problem. Uh, I think this type of monopoly mindset was reasonable for the last 100, 150 years because companies needed to be in the center of cities, and cities only became more important even with the rise of the internet in the last 30 years. Uh, so landlords basically were reinforcing that view. They said, okay, there's all these theories about remote work and about people being able to ship stuff more quickly and to communicate better. Uh, but based on what we've seen, they just need our buildings more than ever before and they want to be in them. So rent is high. Why should I change? And, and of course, no, none of that is true anymore. Now landlords are starting to really feel the, the effect of, of the internet with, with the help of COVID. Um, I think underneath that, there's a lot of structural reasons why it's so hard for real estate companies to change. One is because they're real estate companies. So most real estate, big real estate projects in the world are either held by REITs or by private equity funds. In both cases, these are financial organizations that have a very narrow mandate to own physical assets. So they, they're not allowed to like go and build some amazing technology platform or go and build some amazing service brand or go and hire all sorts of people. Uh, to decide what other people want to eat for breakfast or what do they want to wear and what kind of temperature is their favorite. Uh, it, it's, you know, we've seen in the hotel industry that we had to develop separate companies with separate investors and separate mandates in order to provide these kind of softer layers on top of the assets and to build those brands and provide those services. Uh, second, even within those companies, it's very hard for them to think strategically and to act strategically because real estate companies themselves are very fragmented. So again, if you look at a big private equity fund, I don't need to mention any names, but like, let's say a big one that owns a thousand buildings in theory. So when you look at it from the outside, you say, oh, wow, this is a landlord that owns a thousand buildings. So if they decide tomorrow to have a green roof on each of them in order to uh, become more sustainable, that's going to be amazing for the world. But it's not really a matter of decision for them because each of those buildings is probably like, their holdings are divided probably into 10 different funds. Each fund is managed by different people. It has a different lifespan. So they have to sell the buildings at a different point in time. Uh, the people who run them have their own incentives in terms of how they receive bonuses for specific buildings that are sold. Each building probably has another partner entity, which is a different financial entity that this entity doesn't have control over. Each building probably has one mortgage and probably another layer of debt that is controlled by yet another party. Each building is managed by some property manager, which is usually a third party, which might be a different one for every building. Mm -hmm. So if the CEO of said private equity decides and says, okay, let's go and change all of those buildings tomorrow, he has to now go and convince uh, like 5,000 different stakeholders with different financial incentives, including people within his own organizations, to now forfeit profits that they can make this year in order to serve some goal that might be profitable in five years or in order to serve some goal that is not profitable at all, but like aligns with some interests that are important for the broader company, but not to that specific building. Uh, but ultimately, because every specific building is like a standalone business, it becomes really, really difficult to make these big strategic moves 
you know, so a tenant can say, you know, Microsoft can say all of our offices will become whatever sustainable tomorrow because we're deciding to install something. But the landlord actually cannot do that uh, in most cases, at least not at scale. Uh, and, and like this, there's a lot of other structural kind of reasons why it's so difficult to push things, to make change, even if you want to change, let alone if you don't want or if you don't care about it. Um, and then there's more of the usual suspects of, you know, it's a relatively older industry, relatively male dominated, relatively less diverse. Uh, most of the people who are there usually went through the same type of training and this, have the same type of history. So it just doesn't have the type of vibrance that you have in the most vibrant organizations in the world today. So if you look even at tech companies, even though they're called tech, like a product team on a tech company can have a behavioral scientist and a designer and a psychologist and a programmer and an electrical and like people who studied completely different things and came from completely different worlds mm-hmm. are the ones that are creating the best products in the world. And in the real estate industry, we just don't have that kind of mix. So the little that Anthony and I are trying to contribute is one point people towards all of those blind spots and kind of structural barriers and try to alleviate them, give voice and power to more diverse people, the people that are already in there to give them a broader perspective and and an understanding of the need for a broader perspective uh, and some knowledge that they can use to, to either be effective or at least to become a little humbler and let, you know, make room for, for other ideas and other people. That's interesting. What's one of the things that, um, that has kind of always been troubling to me, and I made a post about this a while ago, um, was about the fact that from a tenant perspective, corporate real estate management has always been highly focused on uh, efficiency and effectiveness, which seems kind of paradoxical right now. And if we think about how these have been bundled together, because in the past, corporate real estate has been a bit of a what I call a bit of a wasteland um, where, you know, that opportunity to reduce space really hasn't been a priority. And I never really understood that, especially when you consider the fact that the cost of real estate is, you know, the second highest cost that a, a company incurs next to labor. It kind of makes you wonder, like, why doesn't it matter? I mean, when you're managing costs in the business, you're either driving, you know, uh, revenues or reducing costs, you know, and ultimately if you're reducing costs, you're increasing your profits. It's kind of like, why is it okay to just continuously spend on, on real estate when, you know, there's information that's pointing you to sort of understand that, you know, space is not being used. And so when we think about things like the impact on just the effectiveness of real estate, I kind of wonder and would like to hear your thoughts on does occupancy as a as a KPI matter anymore? Do you mean occupancy? Like just building occupancy, people coming into into offices, considering the fact that we, you know, we're two years in or almost two years into working out of the office. You've got, you know, a ton of buildings. Companies have just suddenly realized that maybe we don't need as much real estate, there's a lot of conversation around knowing occupancy, but it kind of feels like it doesn't, occupancy doesn't really matter anymore. Measuring that doesn't matter anymore because it's a given, right? I think that the the paradox is that offices matter less than ever, but they also matter more than ever, much, 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 much more, more than ever. And you said um, that people used to be very concerned about efficiency and effectiveness. I'd say they were only really concerned about efficiency and that's where, where the occupancy is. Yeah, how many, how many people can we notionally get in this space? And then they, they somehow completely ignored the fact that um, actually half the time people weren't there anyway. So the elephant in the room of the office market is that offices historically have been incredibly inefficient and ineffective. They just have not enabled people to be pr- productive. And what I think has happened over the last two two years, of course, the the, the first and obvious thing that's happened is that um, everyone has realised that, funny enough, remote working, you know, by and large, works. And uh, people didn't really think that before, or at least a certain, a certain type didn't didn't think think that before. Um, but of course, we've now realised it does. But we've also realised what doesn't work. And I think you'll find that what's going to happen in the in the the office market is that the the cheap market, the cheap end of the market is going to be fine. 
Because there's always people who just need cheap space. Just keep the mm. roof rain, rain off my head. Um, the top end of the market, and I think this is probably the top 30, maybe up, up to 40% of the market, is completely going to change in, in tone and is absolutely going to become a, ser- a service industry. People are going to go to offices for deliberate purposes and to do very specific things. And offices are actually going to turn from knowing nothing about what's happening inside them to everything that's happening inside them. Because the whole point is, Anthony is in the in this office. I'm paying Anthony an awful lot of money. How do I ensure he's as productive as possible? So what does he need? Has he got the right space? Has he got the right environmental conditions? Has he got the right tools, et cetera, et cetera? And everything's going to move move from being being about a productive workforce. I mean, I have the, the, this line that no company wants an office, they want a productive workforce. And the point is, how do we enable our people, and from a landlord's point of view, how do we enable our customers' people to be as efficient, as happy, healthy, and productive as they can be? Because if you want to get the most out of the, the most expensive input in your business, you've got to make your people happy, and you've got to make them healthy, and then they will be productive. I mean, there's so many, it's so many paradoxes going on in the, in the world now that, you know, to actually do the hard Adam Smith thing of getting the most output from your people, you need to do the fluffy stuff. You need to make them happy and you need to make them keep them healthy and then they will, and then they will be productive. So I think office, offices are going to turn into, into tools to enable people to be happy, healthy and, and productive. And that's going to be that's going to be their job. What's the job of this office? It is to make the people inside it as happy, healthy, and productive as possible. So I'm going to need to understand the wants, needs, and desires of the people in this space so much more than before to enable me to provide them with exactly what they what they want. It's a, it's a very sort of um, luxury mindset. You know, how do you get the most out of out of out of someone? Give them everything they want and need in a framework that incentivizes them to um, to do their, their best thing. So o- occupancy, I think that the, the, the trick is going to be that really offices historically ran at about 50% occupancy, even, even less. And it's only in the 50-odd percent of the famous uh, data point from the Leesman surveys, which has now done 900,000 individual employee service surveys. And they asked the question, does your workplace enable you to be productive? And I think at the moment it's something like 57% say yes. So 40-odd percent of people in offices say that their workplace does not enable them to be productive. So that's such a massive fail, and 50% occupancy is a massive fail. The trick is going to be, how do I create an office building that has 70% plus occupancy and 70% plus satisfaction? And then think, what's the value of an office building that can offer 70-70 against 50-50. And I think the, the, the paradox, again, is going to be that the best buildings with the best operators are going to generate more more revenue than they've ever done before. As I say, the bottom will be all right, and the middle is just going to completely fall out. Because if, if the office I'm going to genuinely does not give me anything better than I can get without going there, it's seriously, why, what's the point of going and from the finance director's point of view, what's the point of paying for it? So a lot of companies are going to have to say, we are really bothered about giving our people great space. Or they're going to have to say, no, that's not, we're not going to do that. So let's go remote. Let's go completely, completely remote and build our businesses like that. But if they want people back in offices, it's not going to happen unless they're the, the, the oddities, if you like. So I sort of think of the, the Goldman Sachs of the world's as the oddities, you know, they just pay people so much money that they can say be in and you have to be in. Otherwise, people are not going to go back and you're going to have a huge amount of obsolete space. But the, be- the best space, I think, is going to be fantastic. So if you're lucky enough to work for an employer who actually seriously cares about you making, making you happy and healthy, you'll know that in the background they're trying to make you productive as well. But that's great. Happy and healthy will do. And then I'll do my bit. So you you talk a lot about productivity and and I'm not surprised because productivity is something that, you know, we've been talking about for a long time. And it's it's one of those things that's 
is fascinating to me because we've never really been able to measure productivity. We talk about it, but there really isn't sort of a a really concrete way of measuring productivity. It's so subjective. Like you can provide, you know, the best space, be in the best location, offer flexibility and all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, what makes someone productive is whether or not they actually feel productive. And there's so many factors that, that play into that. And so do you think that productivity will become a new KPI for businesses going forward? Like actually figuring out how to measure productivity? Can I, can, can I, can I jump in there? Because this is actually my, my hobby horse. I think you can measure productivity. Um, but you have to measure productivity through the lens of what we as real estate people can affect. We cannot make a bad company good. We cannot make a rotten culture a good culture. And rule number one, if you're running a company, <laughs> have a good culture. That's the first thing. But what we can do is we can enable people to be as productive as possible in terms of their cognitive function. So for Anthony to perform at his best, he needs to be in an environment where the CO2 is right, the noise is right, the lighting's right, the air quality is right, and then boom. He might, he might work for a rubbish company with a rubbish culture, but in terms of cognitive function, this space has enabled him to be as good as he can be, given all the other variables. And I think that's the way real estate has, has, to, has to look at it. How do we provide space that enables people to operate at their maximum cognitive capability? Because that's what we can control. And we know that if we, if we have bad air quality or poor lighting, too much noise, too little noise, bad air, air quality, we know it trashes um, cog- cognitive function. There was a, a report in my Twitter feed today of someone that had correlated air quality with the competence of a chess player. And, it has a, and the result is it has an amazing, amazing impact. If you put a chess player in badly ventilated space with poor air, air quality, they're not as good a chess player. And so if we stick to really fixating on the part of the, the equation that we can impact, then absolutely you can, you can have a huge difference. If you come to my brand, you know I am going to put your employees in the right space that enables them to be as good as they can be. You go to their space, you tell me. Do they tell you what the air quality is? Do they guarantee the, the, the environmental conditions? No, I will do that for you. So I can't make your business better, but I can make your, enable your people to be as good as they can be by that. Yeah, and I think to extend what Anthony said, you know, to offer them the best possible office for them to do whatever it is that they have to do is actually not a single office. So it's increasingly, it means <laughs> empowering them to access a network of different locations or of different rooms that are specialized for whatever specific tasks they're trying to do. Because sometimes, you know, they're trying to focus. Sometimes they need access to tools to do a podcast or to edit videos. Sometimes they're trying to impress a client. Sometimes they're trying to run an amazing meeting. Uh, and each of those requires a different space that, that is optimized for it, which is another thing. You know, landlords tend to think about the space as a single thing that you're giving the tenant, but more and more tenants want to empower their employees to have this access to whatever it is that they need at the moment in order to be amazing. And enabling that access ultimately is a different business, I think, from just kind of saying, okay, we're building space and renting it out. It's 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 funny, actually, because um, I was talking to a couple of people in the, the brokerage space, and you probably have heard this, too, this conversation around, you know, the change uh, in terms of the amenities and kind of leaning more towards sort of the hospitality model, right? So kind of where buildings are not just about, you know, segmented tenant space, but sort of opening up that space so that you can have a similar experience to, you know, when you go and uh, into a hotel and just how you have access to all spaces, even though you have your own, you know, your own room to stay at. What are your thoughts in terms of that? Like, do you think, you know, is that enough? Like, is it the amenity part? Is it the, uh, you know, the, the hospitality feeling, the concierge and kind of being weighted on hand and foot almost when you walk into a building that no. bring people back? I think a lot of that is 
landlords running towards what they already know how to do and trying to do more of it, bigger, better, faster. Let's add more marble, more elevators, more space for something. Uh, you know, it's going to work in some cases, at least in terms of convincing certain tenants, but that's not the answer. It's a bit like, you know, McDonald's seeing people uh, talking about, you know, new diets or concerned about heart disease or interested in ha- having better nutrition and saying, okay, let's do a, an even bigger burger and like add like, I don't know what. You're just doubling down on, on what you've been always doing. So again, for some customers, they might be excited and say, oh, wow, now I'm getting half a pound more of beef. But like those <laughs> other, those other new and kind of growing groups of customers want something completely different. And I think the biggest answer to whatever question you have about the future of real estate is that there is no single answer. Like we're moving from an industry where, okay, there was like, okay, there was a, a clear thing of what we're supposed to do as landlords. That kind of clear middle, one size fits all. Most landlords are trying to figure out what is that new one size fits all that we can just go on doing now and, and not have to think again for the next 20 years. The answer is that that thing doesn't exist anymore. So if we go back to that hotel industry analogy, you know, the hotel of the future is not a Marriott or a Hilton or a W or it's 50 different things, depending on who you're trying to target at what point, And sometimes at what point in the same day, because it might be the same person in different situations that have like different tasks that they're trying to achieve. Uh, so again, it's a much more dynamic business. You have to make decisions that involve trade-offs. So saying, okay, I only cater to those people, which means that now I'm not attractive to probably 90% of the rest of the market. But for mm-hmm. the 10% that I am targeting, I'm going to be amazing which is the opposite of what real estate has been doing until now. So I would say, you know, we have elevator music in office buildings and elevator music is basically synonymous with like something that has no character, is bland, it doesn't offend anyone. And in real estate, that has been a feature. You know, our building is for everyone. We build it the same way. We don't care if you're an advertising agency or a law firm or a bank. We'll just give you that box and you do whatever you want with it. But now the landlords themselves need to start making those decisions to say, okay, who is our building for? What do they care about? Maybe they care about the marble. Maybe they don't care about the marble at all. Maybe they just want stairs and, you know, a room for dogs, or maybe they want the gym, or maybe they want childcare. Each group wants something completely different. Uh, and even within the same company, probably there's groups of people that want different things, which is why a network is probably the solution of the future and not like a landlord trying to figure out what everyone on earth is going to like at any given moment because far better equipped uh, entities than landlords have not managed to figure out like a magic thing that works for everyone uh, all the time. Um, so, and I think ultimately that's why it means that landlords now have all of these responsibilities and things to figure out. And most of them will realize that they can't figure them out and that they have to outsource them and partner with other entities that are better at that. And they will partner with different entities for different projects as they see fit, just like they partner with hotel brands, you know, one mm-hmm. building is really, really good for something for for young people who are backpacking and want to share a room. And another building is really good for, you know, wealthy families that are coming to Manhattan for the first time for a weekend. And the landlord could be the same for all buildings, but it cannot be the operator for all of those buildings if he wants to be competitive. Uh, and we'll see the same thing in office and in multifamily and even in industrial and other things that were considered boring until recently, but now they require you to be more and more specialized. And even if they wanted to, and most landlords don't even want to, I don't think they'll be able to become as specialized as necessary in most cases. Yeah. Go ahead, Anthony. So I was just going to say, but this is the absolutely critical point, isn't it? That the industry, the fundamental change in the industry, which is something we bang on about on the course so much, is that real estate used to be a product industry. It used to be about building something, selling it, or leasing it. It's now a service company. So it's now about, instead of selling someone a product, it's now about delivering them a service. Uh-huh. So it yeah, and delivering it to a consumer it, as well, not to an entity it, that like has 2,000 employees. And, yeah. it, exactly. And that, and that, I think, is what makes it so incredibly interesting at the, 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 the moment, because to succeed, you are going to have to understand either your existing customer or the customer you're aiming to attract at a really, really granular level, at, at the level of a, you know, if you look, if you look at the really, the really great brands, and particularly the really great sort of luxury brands, they know so much about their customer, and they understand what makes them tick, what they need, what it is they they desire, and real estate is is going to 
become like that. But that's why you're going to get much, much better real estate. Because if I were working fashion and there's a developer who's developing spaces for people in the fashion industry, it's going to be better than anyone else has ever produced because it's absolutely going to be designed around the things we do. I mean, another thing we go on about in, in the course is Clayton Christensen's Jobs to be Done. Understanding what it is that this product or service is delivering to the person. What is it they're trying to achieve? And that's why I think it's so interesting. And it's also going to make the industry so much more inclusive and diverse because we're going to need a whole new set of skills within real estate companies to be able to deliver these services. So I used to say that an office takes six different industries. So it needs a real estate industry. It needs data industry. It needs an IoT and networking thing. It needs workplace. It needs hospitality. And it needs, I can't remember what, what, what the sixth one is. But basically, oh, HR. But these are six industries that really do not, I mean, you write about this brilliantly all the, all the time, six industries that do not talk to each other. But to create a great workplace, you need the input of all of them. Well, the, the great real estate company of the future is either going to have all that inside or is going to build a network where they're the, the sum and they're going to build a network of suppliers who work very, very closely with them across all those different inputs. Yeah. And that's just completely different, but vastly more interesting and offers opportunities. One of the things that come, keeps coming up in the course, we ask, we ask people on the course, if you were given the commencement speech at a prestigious university, what would you say to graduates to convince them to come into real estate? And the thing that comes back, and very noticeably last year, we did a, a series of um, private cohorts with one of the big uh, real estate service companies in, a in Asia, but lots of young people. And they all said, it's diversity, it's important, it's impact, it's our place in the world is so much mediated through real estate. You know, the software industry pats itself on the back all the time, oh, we're going to change the world, we're going to change the world. But the real estate can really change the world. Real estate people can really change the experiences of people. You can't change the world as easily as software in the sense that you can't cater for the, for the whole world. But you can cater for an awful lot of people and you can improve the lives of an awful lot of people. That's a, a great, inspiring, inspiring thing. Yeah, it's certainly a, a big ship to turn. <laughs> <laughs> it's turning, though. Yeah, but, a lot, there they are. but even the mindset changes make such a big difference. You know, you don't need to, like, rebuild all the buildings in the world. If anything, you need to not rebuild all the buildings in the world. <laughs> Just yeah. having that, that consumer mindset of saying, okay, I actually need to care about the people in those buildings. They are my customers now. I need to get to know them. You know, I always give this example that every time I have a birthday, I get 50 emails from all sorts of companies that maybe I visited the website once or bought something from them once. And they're trying to make the most of every piece of information that they have about me to appeal to me and to think about what would make me happy and willing to spend. And then now I'm not a renter anymore. But when I was a renter, you know, in Manhattan, you can spend almost $100,000 a year giving them to your landlord. And I'm like, this entity didn't even wish me a happy birthday. They don't know who I am. They don't want me to know who they are because they're probably hiding behind three different LLCs. Like, what kind of business is this? <laughs> you know, I'm paying you so much money. Don't you want to know something about me or to try to leverage our relationship? Like, you know, when I came in, when I walked out, who came to visit me? What did I order? There's so much that you know about me and you're not doing anything with it. Yeah. I'm almost offended. You know, we're, we're annoyed when Facebook tracks us. I'm like offended that my landlord doesn't know anything about me. <laughs> I, I think we have to approach it like the, the joke about, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You know, one spoonful at a time. You know, if you if you approach the, the, the real estate problem as how do I change real estate? You obviously can't. But if you approach it that I can I can build X for Y customer base and it'll be great. And, and sort of work. There's I don't know. There's probably 20, 30 percent of the market would agree with. 90% of what we say of the course and 70% would go, <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm just not interested. I'm going to send them rent, a, a rent check, a rent claim. <laughs> but that 30% in such a big market is still big. You don't need all the market. Very true. Very true. The future of work is not obvious. Uh, while many talk about the wider acceptance of hybrid work from home, work from anywhere, co-working, they're not new. 
Uh, when we talk about the future, I'm trying to think about what's next, and it feels like it's so much bigger than we can imagine. Obviously, we've just talked about where real estate is going. Recently, there's a company um, that announced a people counter solution that's bridging crypto with traditional business. Wanted to get your take on this and whether businesses should be paying attention to crypto, DOAs, NFTs, and all of this stuff. To me, it feels really gimmicky, but I don't, it's way over my head. I don't really understand that space. And so I just wanted to get your perspectives on how you can bridge those two worlds together. Sure. So I think that the project you're referring to is kind of like a people counter that they're incentivizing people to install in different places and kind of compensate them with tokens and then collect this data, of course, about like occupancy and Correct. and traffic. Uh, and they're building on a model that a few others have used before uh, with hardware and crypto, mostly in, in terms of in, installing Wi-Fi hotspots or long fi hotspots. So to kind of try to create networks where you incentivize people to install different things and to maintain some sort of public good. I have to say, in this case, I don't love this idea because you're infringing on people's privacy and maybe not always letting all the relevant entities know that you're collecting this information. So you're kind of incentivizing cowboys, basically, to go and collect data on other people without, like, letting them know. Uh, I think more broadly, I, you know, I think crypto is really, really important, an important thing to understand, just like the, the Internet was important to understand in the mid-90s. It also means that just like the Internet back then, most of the names and topics and, and uses that we're seeing now are probably not going to survive and they will have to mature and turn into other things. But when it comes to real estate, I've seen the same kind of monopolistic instinct pop up when real estate people think about crypto. They're mostly interested in those kind of real estate, very real estate angles of like, OK, can I raise more money with this or can I tokenize my building or can I? Yeah, incentivize people to install some piece of hardware in the building so I can collect something about my tenant, but without letting them know about it. Well, I think crypto will have a huge impact on real estate. Most of that impact will not come from the obvious real estate directions. It would come from how they affect the, the, the nature of work itself, the way other organizations work, uh, the way people collaborate, uh, which in effect will impact the demand for office or demand for flexible housing and other things like that. And they will create all sorts of new marketing methods and, and, again, new ways to market consumer products that are relevant for anyone who's trying to market something, which is what real estate people should be thinking about. But, again, they're not thinking so much about really real marketing and how to engage a community. They're just thinking, okay, why, what can I install in my building or how can I raise more money, uh, which are important questions, but they're not the ones that are going to lead you to understand the, something about the, the nature of the, of demand and how it is changing. Still sounds a little vague because it's a huge topic, but that's uh, <laughs> that's all. No, I no, it's, it's good. As I said, to me, it's it's kind of one of those things where you know, when I first read read the article, I was I thought, well, you know, this is, could be interesting because you did, you touched upon privacy, and it's like you know, could that technology be used to allow individuals to sort of control when and how much information they share, where you get compensated for sharing your location so kind of reversing reversing that that was kind of where my mind went initially is you know rather than you know businesses or real estate or whoever taking advantage of collecting information and then making money off of our information putting the control into the hands of the actual end user um but then it's kind of it sort of makes you wonder you know is it is it a, a solution that you know the, the whole crypto nft kind of space is that something that is meant to sort of keep us honest so that, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the way that it's, it's my understanding anyways of how it's being presented uh, because of the traceability or is there sort of that element of someone ultimately being able to take control because it's all going into, you know, some sort of entity that, you know, obviously it's decentralized for sure, but it kind of makes you like you have no control over it. So is there someone else that's controlling that and, you think yeah. it's a good thing, but it's, you know, potentially there could be some fallout as a result. So crypto making people honest is not something I've observed. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> but as a theoretical promise and premise, uh, I think, yeah, the, the idea of decentralization is really, really interesting. But ultimately, even those decentralized networks, they're governed, even if they're governed by a community and not by some tyrant, the way the community itself is governed is a huge question. And I think 
we're seeing now a lot of experimentation in that space, which is why it's so exciting. But ultimately, it's a bit like what we see in our own politics and with democracy, you know. So is democracy a good thing? Does it always lead to the yeah. best outcome? Again, like as Churchill said, it's the, it's the best outcome after you've tried all the other ones, right? Like it's, a, it's the worst one, but all the other ones are are worse. So we, we might have a similar situation with crypto that ultimately this kind of shared governance might be valuable, but it's definitely not going to be as ideal as a lot of people imagine that it is. And it's not going to be a magic thing where you say, okay, for example, if we talk about data, like, okay, we're going to collect a lot of data about people, but instead of being owned by Facebook, it will be owned by a community. That sounds really cute. But then when you understand what a community is, it's ultimately a group of people and some of them have more power than others. Uh, just by sheer participation, you know, not everyone is going to vote about every issue and not everyone is going to understand every issue and not everyone is going to care as intensively about every issue. So you'll have all of these inefficiencies that ultimately will reach some equilibrium that might be better than what we have today, but it's not going to be some, we shouldn't use it as an excuse to do even worse things with technology with the assumption that they'll just be in the hands of some benevolent community. I, I, I think there's a really interesting, the way I see it is, it is probably like arguing about, well, GeoCities has won the war. So, you know, Decentraland is going to be the virtual world of every, everything, but it's much more likely to be GeoCities, which most people have never even heard of now, but was the huge thing back in the day. So we're, I don't know whether we're two years, five years or 10 years away from things sort of coming out, but I think, I think fundamentally there's a battle going on that I, I can completely buy in, if you like, to the more hippie side of crypto, the idea that we don't want the world to be run by six monster companies and we should have more control over our identity agency and all that. Completely. I get I get all that. But then I also see waged against that is the sort of almost alt-right libertarian, smash the state, down with the dollar, don't tax us, sod off, we run everything world. And they're, and they're, they're sort of fighting. But I think fundamentally what crypto is going to end up needing is non-tech humans to get involved. You know, I think, I think of it a bit like when, you know, Jobs came back to Apple and that chap uh, stood up and accused him of, what are you doing here? You know nothing about tech. And Jobs sat there for about 20 seconds fuming and then made that wonderful five minute talk about you have to start with the customer and work back to the technology. You have to think about what is it we can do to make our customers life better and then work back to the technology. And I think so much of what could happen with crypto could be fantastic, but it needs a lot of input from the non-Peter Thiel types, you know. And it could do an awful lot more women in there. Just get a lot more women into crypto. That would be that would that be good. So it, it, women and apes and... Uh, exactly. <laughs> and the, and the, art, and the, art, the art is absolutely terrible. So to be honest, it's, it's the topic that drives me mad and takes up far too much of my my bandwidth, but I desperately want to make sure I'm not the bloke who got the internet really early <laughs> and then dissed on crypto when it really was important. So we shall see. We shall see. Well, thank you to both of you. This has been uh, really fun and very informative. I really appreciate your time and your insights. Our pleasure, Sandra. Thank, thank, you. Love you. thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.